Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the Communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the communique. The print versions in these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the coroner's court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the clinical communique, focusing on acute care, the future leaders communique, designed for recent health graduates, and the residential aged care communique, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition. Welcome to this podcast titled Twisting of the Points, where we are drawing on the content from the June edition of the Clinical Communique. I'm Dr. Nicola Cunningham, the Editor-in-Chief of this series. In this episode, we've selected two cases set outside of a hospital system to focus on. In these cases, the patients were being cared for in secure settings. One was a correctional facility and the other was a mental health facility. We wanted to explore some of the challenges faced by clinicians providing care in these types of settings, which can sometimes be difficult to appreciate. Consider a patient with complex health needs, then add in a number of mental health and drug and alcohol issues, then layer that scenario with security concerns that affect when and how that patient is seen, introduce a number of medications, all with significant side effect profiles, and finally, throw in an insidious medical condition and you have an extremely challenging situation and the basis for this episode. The two cases we feature are very different, but they do share those same challenges and both in fact resulted in death thought to be from a medication-induced arrhythmia. We start with the editorial which discusses the challenges I've just alluded to and looks at the type of arrhythmia that is thought to have occurred in those cases. Our two experts for this episode are introduced in the editorial. At a time when concerns about the COVID-19 pandemic are increasing in Australia and around the world, it's a real measure of a person who can still find the time to share their knowledge and experience with others. Our two experts and our case summary author, in the midst of juggling their immense workloads, found the time to contribute to this publication. I'm very grateful to them for giving their time to share their expertise with us to improve patient safety. We have two cases for you, one from Western Australia and one from New South Wales. The cases are followed by our two expert commentaries that round out this edition really well. Let's now listen to Luke Ward narrate the editorial. Welcome to the June 2020 Clinical Communique, Volume 7, Issue 2. The contents of this edition include an editorial, case number one, a series of very unfortunate events, case number two, a twist in the list, 
Then expert commentary number one, drug-induced QT prolongation. And then commentary number two, mental health in secure settings is different. First, I will present the editorial, brought to you by Dr. Nicola Cunningham. Welcome to the episode two of the Clinical Communique podcast, titled Twisting of the Points. In this podcast, we explore two cases where death occurred in secure settings, a correctional facility and a mental health facility. As the details unfolded at inquest, it became apparent that the usual layers of complexity that exist in providing care to patients with multiple physical and mental health comorbidities in acute hospital settings were magnified. Major logistical issues included access to the facility, use of multiple providers, and personal safety concerns for the staff. What ensued in both cases were errors in the use of torsidogenic drugs that led to the suspected outcome of fatal arrhythmia. Torsidogenic drugs are those recognised to prolong the QT interval and increase the risk of torsade de point. Translated from the French as twisting of the points, torsade de point is a specific type of cardiac arrhythmia that may lead to sudden cardiac death. It is a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia that exhibits distinct characteristics on the ECG where the QRS complexes twist around the isoelectric line. Many antipsychotic and antidepressant medications are implicated in QT prolongation, so the synergistic effects of polypharmacy are very real concerns in the settings of mental health care. QT prolongation has the potential for life-threatening complications that occur abruptly and without clinical warning, but it remains an unseen danger unless an ECG is performed. It is therefore imperative that risks are considered, especially in non-hospital settings, and patients on these medications are routinely screened for any ECG abnormalities. We present two expert commentaries, one by Dr. Catherine Isuardi, who outlines the drugs known to prolong the QT interval and who offers pragmatic guidance on identifying and calculating the risks associated with these drugs. Catherine is an emergency physician and clinical toxicologist based in Brisbane at the Princess Alexandra Hospital. She is also the medical director of the Queensland Poisons Information Centre. In our other expert commentary, Dr. Danny Sullivan presents an astute overview of the challenges in delivering mental health care in secure settings. Danny is the Executive Director of Clinical Services at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Mental Health, also known as Forensicare, whose work extends to medico-legal and complex case assessments in criminal, coronial and child protection cases in all jurisdictions in Australia. Before delving into the cases and commentaries of this edition, we wish to acknowledge the incredible work done by clinicians near and far over the past few months. The year has been like no other, and as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have all borne witness to the best and the worst of the human spirit as the world faced these extraordinary events. In healthcare, 
individuals and organizations strove to ready themselves, adapt quickly, and share their experience, and step well outside their comfort zones, all the while maintaining professional integrity and protecting their patients, themselves, and their families. It has been a truly remarkable moment in time. Our contributors, Dr. Rohith DeCosta, Dr. Catherine Iswadi, and Dr. Danny Sullivan, exemplified this incredible spirit by contributing at a time when busy preparing their own units for a potential surge of COVID-19 patients. They dedicated precious time and attention to sharing their expertise and insights with our listeners to improve patient safety. We thank them for their generous contributions. We recently launched our first podcasts and have been delighted with the positive feedback. It has made the long hours and many challenges worth our collective efforts. As we all now wait in nervous anticipation of what the second wave of COVID-19 looks like, we must not take our eyes off what is at the core of all our healthcare practices. The need to continuously improve patient safety for everyone, everywhere. Let's now listen to the case from New South Wales. Case number one, a series of very unfortunate events. Case number 56-12, WA. Case Precy author, Dr. Rohith DeCosta, intensivist, Royal Melbourne Hospital Medical Director, Donate Life Victoria. Clinical summary. Miss A.W. was a 19-year-old woman with a diagnosis of impulsive personality disorder and chronic alcohol and cannabis abuse. Due to her drug and alcohol misuse and mental health issues, she was deemed to have a chronic high risk of suicide. On one occasion where she had been drinking spirits and using cannabis, she attempted to harm herself but was quickly found and taken to an ED for assessment. There she was uncooperative, swearing at the staff and eager to leave, but was kept in the department overnight to sober up. The next morning, a decision was made that her risk to herself was not increased and she was subsequently discharged from from the ED. That night, however, she again attempted to harm herself and was found and transported by police to the ED. Once more, she was intoxicated and combative, so was sedated and kept in hospital overnight. On review the next morning, she refused a voluntary admission to the hospital's mental health unit, so the psychiatrist made a decision to admit her to an authorised hospital as an involuntary patient. Patients under involuntary status were generally sent to the hospital via the Royal Flying Doctor Service. The patient reacted angrily to this decision and both sedation and physical restraint in the high dependency unit were necessary to facilitate ongoing care and safe transfer. A large cumulative dose of psychotropic medication, including 52.5 milligrams of haloperidol, 5 milligrams of droperidol and 40 milligrams of olanzapine were given in the hours spent waiting for air transfer in addition to benzodiazepines, which were 30 milligrams of midazolam and 8 milligrams of clonazepam, and an antihistamine, which was made up of 100 milligrams of promethazine.
The Royal Flying Doctor Service crew, comprising Dr. D and registered nurse J, arrived to retrieve Miss A.W., but first attended the bedside of an intubated patient with a neck injury in ED, who they were also transferring. Dr. D remained with the patient while registered nurse J went to the high dependency unit to see Miss A.W. While in the high dependency unit, registered nurse J asked one of the nurses to prepare two 50 milliliter syringes for their flight, one containing midazolam and the other haloperidol. Registered nurse J then returned to the ED. The high dependency unit nurse contacted the nurse unit manager to access more haloperidol from stock to complete the request. The nurse unit manager queried whether 50 milligrams or 50 milliliters of haloperidol was required by the Royal Flying Doctor Service crew and was told by the high dependency unit nurse that the request had been for 50 milliliters. The nurse unit manager discovered that the remaining hospital stock of haloperidol was 50 milliliters, so she contacted Dr. D to confirm that 40 milliliters would suffice. The syringes were then labeled haloperidol 200 milligrams per 40 milliliters and midazolam 50 milligrams per 50 milliliters and provided in a bag for the flight. During the flight, Dr. D was in the rear cabin with the intubated patient and registered nurse J was positioned near the front with Miss A.W. and a police escort. Miss A.W. became agitated on two occasions and was administered three milligrams of midazolam intravenously. She did not settle for long, so registered nurse J asked Dr. D whether she should administer haloperidol. Dr. D agreed to give her five, so registered nurse J administered five milliliters of that syringe. Miss A.W. still did not settle, so registered nurse J gave her another five milliliters of haloperidol. This appeared to have effect, so registered nurse J proceeded to complete her documentation. She then read the label on the syringe and realised that she had inadvertently administered 50 milligrams of haloperidol rather than 10 milligrams. She alerted Dr. D immediately, who reviewed Miss A.W. and noted that her clinical condition appeared unchanged. Dr. D contacted the clinical coordinator, Dr. C, and explained they would need to take Miss A.W. to an emergency department because of how she's been on the flight. A conversation then took place between Dr. C and an emergency department doctor about possibly transferring Miss A.W. to that department, and a decision was made that Miss A.W. could be taken to the authorised mental health facility as arranged. Dr. S., the receiving medical officer at the facility, then called Dr. D. for a handover and was told that Miss A.W. had received large amounts of sedation. However, Dr. D did not mention the drug error during their communication. On landing, Miss A.W. was transferred to a waiting ambulance and registered nurse J told the paramedics that she had administered 50 milligrams of haloperidol in error. When the ambulance arrived at the facility, the paramedics did not pass on the details of the medication error. At this stage, 
Miss A.W. was responsive and agitated with normal vital signs, so Dr. S. agreed that she was not too sedated to be admitted to their facility. Whilst initially agitated, Miss A.W. became progressively drowsy on the ward. She was placed on 15-minute observations and her vital signs remained in the normal range. That afternoon, she was found unresponsive, stiff and cold. Pathology. The post-mortem examination revealed a non-specific myocarditis and the cause of death was listed as combined drug effect and myocarditis. In the context of the history, the possibility of a QT prolongation effect of the psychotropic drug haloperidol causing a malignant arrhythmia was felt to be more likely than respiratory depression due to the drugs. Investigation. Miss A.W. was an involuntary patient under the Mental Health Act at the time of her death, so an inquest into her death was mandatory under the Coroner's Act. The coronial investigation found that a series of missteps in the request for, preparation of, and administration of further haloperidol in the air ambulance led to a tenfold dosing error. Inadequate communication led to a lack of appreciation by receiving hospital staff that the error had occurred. The hospital stocked haloperidol in 5 mg per 1 ml amples rather than the 1 mg per 1 ml concentration that registered Nurse J was familiar with using. Dr D explained at inquest that the telephone conversation with the nurse unit manager was unusual because he usually requested drugs in milligrams, not milliliters. During the flight, registered nurse J did not ask Dr. D to check the label on the syringe as he was attending to the intubated patient and Miss A.W. needed urgent sedation. Dr. D did not communicate the medication error in his conversation with Dr. C. If the clinical coordinator or the emergency department doctor or Dr. S had been made aware of the drug error, they would have agreed that Miss A.W. needed cardiac monitoring and to be managed in an acute hospital, not a mental health facility. Dr. S admitted that while completing the paperwork, she had seen the two Royal Flying Doctors Service entries for four haloperidol 25, but interpreted them to mean 2.5 milligrams because 25 milligrams of haloperidol is never given. Medical assessments occurred and ongoing observations were ordered, but the gravity of the situation was not understood because no one was aware of an overdose having had occurred. In particular, the nurse on duty at the time of death thought that the purpose of the regular clinical observations was related to ensuring the patient was not self-harming, which he performed from outside the room as male nurses were not allowed to enter female patients' rooms alone. Miss A.W.'s condition at the time she was found implied that death had occurred some hours earlier. The investigation focused on the series of errors that in turn contributed to Miss A.W.'s death. These included 1. The informality in the request to prepare the haloperidol infusion, which led to a tenfold concentration increase in the final preparation from what had been requested. 2. Inadequate loop closure 
when the nurse preparing the infusion was querying the dose. 3. Administration of two tenfold increased boluses of haloperidol during the air transport, on the assumption that the infusion had been prepared correctly without checking its labelling. 4. A lack of a procedure for highlighting the dosing errors. 5. A lack of appreciation by the team of the potential cardiac effects of the overdosage, which led to the decision eventually to proceed to the mental health facility as originally planned. 6. A lack of handover to the hospital staff of the fact that the error had occurred. 7. A lack of awareness of the error leading to inadequate observations being performed in the wrong setting. Coroner's Findings The coroner found that despite the health professionals involved having operated in good faith and with the interests of Miss A.W. as their priority, the series of errors amounted to a systematic failure which resulted in her death. A number of changes had already been implemented prior to the findings. These changes included protocols on maximum doses of sedatives and antipsychotic medications, adequate recording and communication of these, policy around formal ordering and preparation of transport infusions, adequate monitoring during such transport, including the need to, where possible, record the QT interval, and the importance of handover. Further training around clinical observation was implemented at all mental health inpatient units within the area. The coroner was satisfied with these changes and suggested wider adoption of them within the jurisdiction. Author's comments. This case illustrates the common issue of how serious adverse events usually occur as the result of a series of unfortunate events, each equally critical but equally likely to fall under the radar of a busy clinician. The challenges of maintaining patient and staff safety during care and transport of an agitated patient are significant and very often will require judicious use of chemical and physical restraint, but the specific risks of medications and tools used need to be fully appreciated by all involved in the patient's care. Let's now listen to the Western Australian case. Case number two. A twist in the list. Case number 2013-177495, New South Wales. Case Precy author, Dr Nicola Cunningham, emergency and forensic physician. Clinical summary. Mr E.H. was a 37-year-old man who was six months short of his release date from prison when he died in the cell he occupied. He had already served 15 years of his custodial sentence. His medical diagnoses included mental health problems, including post-traumatic stress disorder and bipolar disorder, chronic back pain, drug dependence, hepatitis C, early cirrhosis, and morbid obesity. While in prison, Mr E.H. was on a methadone program and was being treated by a psychiatrist and general practitioner for his mental health and chronic pain issues. His management plan also included regular reviews by nursing staff to screen for his risk of metabolic syndrome.
Metabolic syndrome is a cluster of cardiovascular risk factors, including insulin resistance, hypertension, central obesity, and dyslipidemia that result in significantly increased risk of cardiovascular disease and death. The screening would involve measurements of weight, girth, blood pressure, cholesterol level, body mass index, and insulin resistance. However, he declined to attend most of the screening sessions that were scheduled for him. On the day before his death, Mr. E.H. was last seen alive at 5.45pm when he was given his prescribed medication. At 7.15am the following morning, he was found in his bed unresponsive and not breathing. An emergency call was made for immediate assistance. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation was unsuccessful and he was pronounced dead at 7.35am. Pathology At autopsy, the forensic pathologist found that Mr. E.H. had an enlarged heart and a body mass index greater than 60, in contrast with the normal range of 18 to 25. Post-mortem toxicological analysis revealed a number of prescription drugs, including escitalopram, amisulpride, codeine, quetiapine, and methadone. Investigation. A mandatory inquest was held to examine the circumstances surrounding Mr. E.H.'s death as he was in lawful custody. A forensic toxicologist and a clinical toxicologist were asked to provide an opinion on the concentration levels of the drugs detected in the post-mortem samples. The forensic toxicologist opined that the citalopram, representing the escitalopram that Mr. E.H. had been prescribed, and codeine levels were outside their expected therapeutic ranges. The clinical toxicologist did not express any concern at the level of codeine, but noted that the concentrations of amylsulpride at 0.85 mg per litre, where therapeutic levels are less than 0.5 mg per litre, and escitalopram at 0.66 mg per litre, when therapeutic levels are less than 0.1 mg per litre, were elevated. He explained that the high levels were either due to post-mortem redistribution or to Mr. E.H. receiving supertherapeutic doses of his medications. He considered that amylsulpride, being a lipophilic drug, was more readily absorbed in fat and therefore more prone to post-mortem redistribution. Elevated escitalopram levels, on the other hand, were more likely due to dosing issues. The coronial investigation did not reveal any evidence to suggest that Mr. E.H. was hoarding his medications. The clinical toxicologist drew attention to the risk of QT prolongation with several of the medications that Mr. E.H. had been prescribed. Of those medications, amisulpride, escitalopram and methadone carried a high risk of prolonging the QT interval. He expressed the view that drugs which prolong the QT interval should not be prescribed concurrently. He further explained that QT prolongation, morbid obesity and heart enlargement were additive risk factors for a fatal arrhythmia. 
His views were supported by the forensic pathologist and two independent psychiatrists at inquest. The coroner heard from the general practitioner, Dr B, and psychiatrist, Dr J, that Mr E.H. was a diagnostically complex patient to care for, who also had a history of violent behaviour. The challenges in engaging him in a health management plan were exacerbated by time and resource constraints within the prison system, limiting the care that was able to be provided to him. When Mr E.H. first saw Dr J, he was taking sodium valproate, quetiapine, gabapentin and methadone. Dr J commenced him on escitalopram. A number of other changes were made to his medication regimen over the next 18 months by both Dr J and Dr B, including an increase in the dose of escitalopram to 30 mg, the addition of panadine forte, replacement of gabapentin with pregabalin, introduction of amylsulpride, followed by parazizine. The dose of quetiapine was gradually reduced in an attempt to address Mr E.H.'s concerns about it causing weight gain and difficulty sleeping. He weighed 150 kilograms when he first saw Dr J and was 199 kilograms at the time of his death. The coronial investigation revealed that Mr E.H. had refused to take his quetiapine for several days in the lead-up to a consultation with Dr J. The psychiatrist had intended to cease the quetiapine, so during their consultation documented that Mr E.H. had stopped taking it, but did not cancel the order on the chart. Mr E.H. then restarted his quetiapine just prior to seeing Dr B, who inadvertently recharted the medication for him. At inquest, Dr B said that he expected to see a stop order on a medication if it was not supposed to be recharted. Dr J admitted that the lack of a stop order was an omission on his part, somewhat affected by knowing that Mr E.H. had already stopped taking the medication. The two independent psychiatrists noted that while Dr J had intended to rationalise the medication regimen, it was not clinically optimal, and the intended use of two antipsychotics and unintended use of a third antipsychotic placed Mr E.H. at a significant risk of adverse side effects. Given his risk of sudden cardiac death, his management should have included regular physical examinations and investigations. Furthermore, the dose of escitalopram was possibly too high, especially in the setting of polypharmacy. The coroner looked at the issues of clinical handover and multidisciplinary team meetings in the custodial setting to explore whether there were any other systems in place to prevent the inadvertent recharting of the quetiapine. Both Dr B and Dr J described the existence of a bare minimum of handover processes due to inflexibilities within the custodial setting that presented challenges for clinicians communicating with other clinicians. Multidisciplinary team meetings did not occur because there were neither the time nor the facility, so clinicians would rely instead on having corridor conversations about patients. Regarding metabolic screening, The coroner heard evidence that mental health patients 
are up to four times more likely to develop metabolic syndrome than the general population. The increased risk due in part to weight gain associated with using antipsychotic medication. There is a need, therefore, to screen patients prescribed psychotropic medication for the presence of metabolic syndrome, but screening guidelines do not consistently address the importance of regular monitoring, including ECG testing for QT interval prolongation. Coroner's Findings The coroner found that Mr E.H. suffered a fatal cardiac arrhythmia as a result of complications from his morbid obesity and his concurrent use of torsidogenic drugs. The coroner recommended that the correctional facility review its medication administration policy and adopt state-based guidelines for prescribing and monitoring psychotropic medications within custodial mental health settings. In particular, the coroner flagged the need for baseline and ongoing electrocardiogram testing to be incorporated into revised guidelines for metabolic monitoring. The coroner also recommended that correctional facilities provide targeted education and training on medication administration requirements to their clinical staff. The many challenges faced by the clinicians in providing care to Mr E.H. in prison were acknowledged by the coroner in his concluding remarks. Best practice medicine indicates that there should be multidisciplinary team meetings to discuss the care and management of patients and a formal clinician-to-clinician handover process where the care of a patient is transferred. However, the limitations of the correctional setting mean that such ideal practices can rarely be implemented, which in turn means that pragmatic and informal processes are adopted. Author's Comments In his finding, the coroner explained that it is sometimes easy to forget that there is a single person at the centre of the inquest when the investigative focus is on systems and processes and how they may be improved for the community at large. The coroner then prefaced the documentary evidence about the circumstances of Mr E.H.'s death with a thoughtful account of Mr E.H.'s troubled life. Mr E.H. was described as a man who loved his family and had a passion for rugby and music, whose life was severely changed after he suffered significant burns in a house fire. He developed mental health and drug addiction issues and became involved in criminal activity, eventually culminating in his convictions for multiple indictable offences and sentences that were to be served concurrently. Throughout his life, Mr E.H. had been like a best friend to his father, who spoke at inquest of how much he missed his son. The coroner's acknowledgement of Mr E.H.'s life and the emotional toll that his death had on his family is a simple and powerful reminder of one of the key functions of the coronial process. To identify the manner of a person's death and determine any system and process changes that could be improved upon to prevent a similar death in the future. That is, to start with a person's untimely death, review the system, and make necessary changes to save another person's life. In reading and talking about coronial findings, patient safety, 
and systems improvements, we should always remember that there is a person, a family member, someone loved, at the heart of every story. Here's the commentary by Dr. Catherine Izzawadi on drug-induced QT prolongation. Expert commentary. Drug-induced QT prolongation from Dr. Catherine Iswadi, emergency physician and clinical toxicologist, Princess Alexandra Hospital Medical Director, Queensland Poisons Information Centre. Drug-induced QT prolongation is caused by agents that block cardiac potassium channels, resulting in delayed ventricular repolarization. QT prolongation can predispose tossard de poix, a life-threatening ventricular arrhythmia. Common drugs which are associated with QT prolongation and TDP include a number of antipsychotics, antidepressants, antiarrhythmics, antihistamines, antimicrobials, and opioids. The specific drugs are listed in our print edition. QT prolongation can occur with these drugs in therapeutic use, although the risk increases when these medications are used in combination or taken in overdose. Furthermore, patient factors can exacerbate drug-induced QT prolongation, including the presence of a congenital long QT syndrome, electrolyte disturbances, in particular hypokalemia, hypocalcemia and hypomagnesemia, and cardiac disease, such as myocardial ischemia or cardiomyopathy. The automated calculation of the QT interval by ECG machines is often unreliable, particularly in the presence of QT prolongation. Clinicians should measure the QT interval manually. The best method is to measure the QT interval in six separate leads of the ECG, and calculate a median value. The QT interval on an ECG is measured from the beginning of the QRS to the end of the T wave. The most important factor affecting the QT interval is the heart rate, with the QT interval shortening as the heart rate increases. Given this, many formulae have been created over the years to correct the QT for the heart rate The most commonly used of these is Bazet's formula, where the QT interval is divided by the square root of the RR interval. Many cutoffs are suggested for an abnormal QT. Most utilize the QT corrected for heart rate, or QTC. However, with heart rates outside of the normal physiological range, the corrected QT is less helpful as it underestimates the risk of TDP in patients with bradycardia and overestimates the risk in patients with tachycardia. Tachycardia is a common complication of overdose, particularly if the agent ingested has anticholinergic or sympathomimetic effects. Many drugs, like quetiapine or venlafaxine, are incorrectly considered to cause QT prolongation in overdose as they result in tachycardia and prolong the QTC, despite having no action on the cardiac potassium channel or ventricular repolarization. To enable a better risk assessment for drug-induced QT prolongation, the QT interval nomogram 
is a more reliable tool. Values over the nomogram line identify patients at risk of TDP that need close cardiac monitoring until the QT normalises. Prevention of drug-induced QT prolongation and TDP is important. A baseline ECG should be performed on initiation of agents known to prolong the QT interval to ensure the patient does not have pre-existing QT prolongation. A follow-up ECG should be performed to monitor the QT interval. Further ECGs should also be performed when these medications are up-titrated. Prescribing multiple QT prolonging agents should be avoided where possible. We now have the commentary by Dr. Danny Sullivan, who describes the challenges of mental health care in secure settings. Expert commentary. Mental health in secure settings is different from Dr. Danny Sullivan, forensic psychiatrist, executive director of clinical services at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Mental Health, honorary senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne. There are nearly 7,000 public psychiatric beds in Australia. For those in remote and regional areas, access is difficult. For involuntary patients in some areas, transfer involves prolonged restraint or intubation and sedation prior to transfer via air ambulance. There are 40,000 people in prison in Australia. These are occupied by vulnerable people disproportionately Indigenous, homeless, with trauma histories and complex psychosocial problems. The health profiles of both prisoners and those detained in public mental health facilities are appalling. All this is known. The two cases discussed here reflect complexities in service provision which challenge us to develop responses grounded not only in individual patient care but in systems of governance. They revealed the power of the coronial process to expose systemic weaknesses, and they demonstrate how systems can increase complexity and the risk of adverse outcomes, not simply related to specific treatment or diagnosis. It is clear from both cases that there were factors in the settings that accounted for decisions made by treating doctors and other healthcare staff. Correctional and secure mental health settings are physically and administratively separated from the mainstream health system. Mental health services that are not co-located with other medical services have to make complex decisions to transfer patients and often have to advocate for their patients to receive good quality mental health care. Prison mental health care. In prisons, Psychiatrists are often contractors with occasional sessions and general practitioners may have little communication with them despite working in the same facility and treating the same patients. Moreover, patients are moved between prisons with little or no communication with or input from treating doctors. Access to other specialists may involve complex referral pathways and transfer out may be not only difficult, but also refused by prisoners. Doctors in prisons are visitors and correctional systems complicate the health care of prisoners.
What this means in practice is that multiple providers may be involved in the care of a single patient without clear accountability and responsibility. Patients who move between prisons experience unanticipated and unplanned transfer of care to new staff. It may not be clear who is initiating, adjusting, or overseeing complex medication regimens. Polypharmacy. Polypharmacy is the prescription of multiple psychotropic medications of the same class and is regrettably normal for complex psychiatric patients. Polypharmacy is increased in forensic settings. The pressure to achieve rapid remission in symptoms, often driven by excessive demand for services, may lead to dose escalation, multiple medications, or unorthodox prescribing. Often what is needed is patience, and the time to permit standard doses and non-pharmacological interventions to take effect. There is limited chance to obtain meaningful collateral information in prisons, and patients may be keen to maintain treatments, whether due to their sedative effects or for abuse potential or trading. In the case of the death of Mr E.H., the treating doctors were well able to appreciate the ways in which working in a prison precluded some of the effective tools of good healthcare management, which include handover, consistent care planning, and the checks and balances of working in a team. What is needed is a culture which enables continuity of care and clear lines of accountability and responsibility, and the consistent care which is the standard in the community. Secure mental health settings. In secure mental health settings, such as forensic hospitals, psychiatrists often assume most responsibility for physical health care. Once more, links with physical health care systems may be limited and access blocked by implicit or explicit obstacles. Transfer to a general hospital might involve handcuffs, security staff, nursing escorts, as well as expense, inconvenience, and sometimes reluctance from general hospitals to review or accept the care of patients with mental disorders. The case of Miss A.W. involving transfer to a secure setting involves the astonishing logistics of long-distance aeromedical evacuation and introduces the potential for physical morbidity associated with intubation or significant sedation to enable transfer. This also removes patients from their communities, supports, and in the case of Indigenous patients, their country. While service provision in remote areas can be complex, part of the risk of misadventure is linked to patients being transported away. Transition points are repeatedly identified as associated with potential for errors, particularly if accompanied by impediments to communication. Miss A.W.'s care involved multiple decision-makers and multiple opportunities to miscommunicate. Of great interest was the role of cognitive dissonance. When staff perceived information which was at odds with their expectations, they accommodated the information by assuming it was as they expected. This is a very understandable human error. How can we then develop systems 
which reduce or eliminate this error. The response of systems arising from incident reviews and the coronial process suggests ways in which procedures can reduce the role of human misinterpretation and enable clear communication at the multiple points of handover. This is particularly important when transfer involves sedation in an environment comprised of road and or air platforms and multiple points of handover rather than the controlled setting of an intensive care unit or an operating theatre. Arrhythmias. Finally, psychiatrists should take heed of the risk associated with QT prolongation, which can seem somewhat abstract and does not present with symptoms preceding crisis. Numerous common antipsychotics and antidepressants are associated with this, as is methadone. In secure settings, ECGs may not be taken frequently and their results may not lead to rationalisation of prescribing. Whether through excessive doses, polypharmacy or adjunctive medications, it seems wiser to avoid the potential for QTC prolongation than to seek cardiological opinion, as suggested in the most comprehensive guidelines available. In conclusion, these tragic cases show the difficulty of maintaining good quality prescribing in settings which do not facilitate continuity of care and which challenge access. There is much to be said for systemic approaches which reduce the likelihood of adverse effects related to psychotropic prescribing in secure settings. Thanks for tuning into this podcast episode. Remember the online print versions are available at our website, www.thecommunicase.com, which also includes a list of resources and any reference that the experts recommended. I'm Nicola Cunningham. Thanks for listening.